This is the fourth in a series of talks by Joel on devotional practices titled Devotion 4, Entering the Spiritual Heart, recorded October 19th, 2005, at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. Okay, we are up to now having talked about purifying the emotional heart, uh, ready to enter the spiritual heart. And we said, for most people, for most people, this happens gradually. The more we let go of the attachments to worldly things that hold us in the emotional heart, if we want to look at it that way, the freer attention becomes to move into the spiritual heart. But what is really the spiritual heart? What are we talking about here? Well, here's what Theophane the Recluse says about it. When attention descends into the heart, it attracts all the powers of the soul and body into the point there. This concentration of all human life in one place is immediately reflected in the heart by a special sensation that is the beginning of future warmth. This sensation faint at the beginning, becomes gradually stronger, firmer, and deeper. At first only tepid, it grows into a warm feeling and concentrates the attention upon itself. And so it comes about that, whereas in the initial stages, the attention is kept in the heart by an effort of will, in due course this attention, by its own vigor, gives birth to warmth in the heart. This warmth then holds the attention without special effort. From this, the two go on supporting one another and must remain inseparable. Now, this is really uh, very close to descriptions in the Buddhist tradition you'll read of the state of calm abiding, which is what uh, Buddhist meditators and more broadly Janana meditators work for. By concentrating on some object, in the Janana case it's usually a neutral object like the breath, one arrives at a state where the effort falls away because there is a pliancy and a bliss that makes it easy just to stay there. And it's a state of clarity. And it's in that state for a Janani that insights can happen. Because it's a clear state, it's not cluttered with all the uh, stories and the dramas and the soap operas that normally go on. So he's describing the same thing. He's using the word warmth here, but that's just his way of talking about this bliss you discover in a state of calm abiding. So what makes this the spiritual heart is this sense of clarity. The bliss is secondary. It almost always will be blissful, but it is the clearness, the sense of all this attachment and busyness and drama and all that, temporarily at least, falling away and leaving the space of just pure consciousness. A completely purified spiritual heart has nothing in it but the one object of the beloved. And that's the difference between the bhakti state of the spiritual heart and 
the Janana state. The Janana uh, usually either has one object, if you've been concentrating on the breath, or it's not a particular object. You'll be in choiceless awareness, and the object will be whatever phenomena happen to be rising in consciousness. And so for the Janani, it's experienced as blissful, but the objects are experienced as completely neutral. For the Bhakti, the object is the object of love and longing. That is the beloved. And in a purified spiritual heart, that object fills the entire space. Fills it not with a solidity, but fills it with a radiance and a light. Here's what the great Sufi Al-Ghazali says about this. The purity of the heart is the sinking of the heart completely in the recollection of God. So there's nothing else. That's the idea of this. There's nothing else. And when he's using heart here, now you see he's referring to spiritual heart. It's not spelled out, but that's why you have to read the context to get a sense of which heart is being talked about. But now, to really enter the spiritual heart, not only do you need to purify the emotions you encounter in the emotional heart, and not only do you need to change your motivation, doing for the beloved what you would normally do for yourself, but you also need to begin surrendering your self-will. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Here's what God tells Catherine of Siena. It is by that death of self-will that she realizes her union with me, and in no other way could she perfectly accomplish that. And here's what Rumi says. No one has reached maturity except him who has been freed from self-will. And in the Upanishads we read, the man who surrenders his human will leaves sorrows behind and beholds the glory of the Atman by the grace of the Creator. So what is exactly self-will, though? Uh, Self-will is closely related, very closely related to emotions and motivation, but it's even more central for most people to the delusion of self, of being a separate self. And we can see this just by considering, for instance, emotions. It's not too difficult, if you're on a spiritual path, to start to experience your emotions as not really me. For instance, if you are doing a practice working with emotions, and then anger arises, instead of beating up on yourself and say, oh, I shouldn't be angry, I'm not supposed to be angry, you recognize it as phenomena arising in consciousness, a kind of energy And if you're doing a bhakti practice, you identify the love, that is the root, and you redirect that to the beloved. But you're not really identified with the emotion of anger. You have an understanding about it as an energy that arises, it's transmuted and passes, and so forth. 
Motivation, we're usually more closely identified with. But even there, we get often into situations where we have conflicting motivations. So let's say uh, on the one hand, you're, you're, oh, you're down in the dining hall and there are those macaroons. And hunger arises. You're motivated by hunger. But then vanity arises. You're on a diet and you don't want to get fat. So there they are in conflict. Well, should I just have one macaroon? No, you shouldn't have one macaroon. Back and forth, back and forth. And for a while, we aren't identified with either one. Which one is the real me? You know, will the real me please stand up? Am I the hunger or the vanity? And then usually one wins out over the other. And then here's where will enters in. When one wins out, we seem anyway to decide to go with that one. And once we've made that decision, that seems irrefutably me. I am the agent of self-will. Even if I'm nothing else, even if I'm not my body, if I'm not my emotions, if I'm not my thoughts, if I've watched all those things arise and pass and I disidentified with them, it seems I can't have a sense of I've decided to do this and not have a sense that that's me. We can have a sense that a decision has been made for us, but then it's not self-will. And it's quite clear, I didn't decide that. Especially on a spiritual path, it will start to happen to you more and more. And we'll be talking about that a little later on the retreat. Something else decided for me. And it's quite clear it ain't me. And that's the whole point. So self-will is the problem here. Self-will is, as I like to say, really for most people, the linchpin that holds that whole delusion of being a separate self together. And that's why there's so much emphasis in all the traditions on somehow dispelling that particular delusion. So that's what we need to do here. Okay. There's a paradox with surrendering your self-will. If you will to surrender your self-will, you're still involved in self-will. So if you get involved in trying to figure out that paradox, which Jananis do, and that's fine, because their practice is to exhaust that poor little mind until it just gives up. But for bhaktis, the beauty of a bhakti path is you can just bypass all that. Do not worry about it. You just plunge into the practice. We try it. And what you discover is, and you don't quite know how it happens, and it doesn't really matter quite how it happens, but if you can identify acts of self-will, if we can put it that way, that once you identify them and you see them, somehow something lets go. And all the concern and worry and so forth attached to it just sort of dissolves. And it usually starts to happen in small little ways during the course of a practice. So, just some examples. Let's say you're sitting there trying to do your mantra and you're repeating it and you're repeating it and you're repeating it and you're getting tired and you're repeating it and so now you need your will to make it happen. You're repeating it. And then 
you get so tired, you just you give up, and suddenly, boom, it's repeating on its own. That's a little bit of grace, a little bit of uh, you surrendered your self-will there, and oh, but it's going anyway. So we discover this through our own experience in these little ways. How does it happen? So let me give you some examples of areas of self-will that you can look for in the course of your practice, not just your formal practice, but your informal practice. For instance, there's a lot of small acts of self-will around personal comfort. I mean, just, you know, how your body is. You're too hot, you're too cold, this and that. Here's what Catherine of Siena says. She's describing someone who is surrendered. She holds all things in reverence, the left hand as well as the right, hunger and thirst as well as eating and drinking, cold and heat and nakedness as well as clothing, life as well as death, honor as well as disgrace, distress as well as comfort. In all things she remains solid, firm, and stable because her foundation is the living rock. And what she means by that is that's a metaphor for Christ, the rock, but what it means in terms of the practice, her foundation is complete reliance on the beloved. So she has surrendered her will and turned it over to the beloved. But notice she enumerates these very concrete things. Hunger, cold, disgrace. So this is a clue for us. This is a clue to practice. When you're sitting here in the meditation hall and you're getting tired and it's too cold, you watch. The self-will arises and says, I want out of here. Won't somebody turn up the heat? And there's even maybe an impulse, you know, and the next time around, I'm going to turn up that thermostat. It's just too cold in here. That's a little act of self-will. It seems so common. We don't notice it, but it is a little act of self-will there. At work, and we touched upon this the other day, treating your work as service to the divine. And part of what it means to turn that into service is to surrender your will about it. Ananda Maima has a good description of this. Whatever you do, whether with your hands or with your brain, do it as his service. Whatever you accept physically or mentally, accept it as God coming to you in this shape. If anything is to be given, it is surrender of yourself at his feet. We have a wonderful opportunity up here to practice this because we don't need to use our brains too much. It gets more complicated when we need to use our brains. If you're the manager of a department in some company, you need to use your brain and you need to make decisions. There's a way of making decisions, however, without having it your will be done. There's a way of making a decision for the good of the whole where it's not your will at all. It's just recognizing the good of the whole and you don't have to make even the decision that happens because that is what's good for the whole. But up here we have these simple little chores that we are given to do. We didn't have any choice about them. 
Well, I guess if you sign up in that sense, you have a little choice. But basically, once you got the choice, and up here, uh, they have manuals that tell you exactly how to do it. They try not to give you any choice about that either, which is good. You know, our first instinct is to rebel against that. But the more it's prescribed, the more it's laid out, the less you have to do with it, the better for your practice, because then you can watch your little self-will how you would do it. So we just recognize it. How do you surrender? I can't tell you that. But you watch what happens when you recognize it and you see it. And part of it is you recognize a little bit of suffering attached to it, a little worry, a little resistance, a little conflict with things. Oh, and if you recognize that, you just drop it. Just let it go. Here's a more subtle one. Grasping on to emotions and emotional states, feel-good states and emotions, as opposed to the yucky ones. You know, different emotions, states, feelings are coming and going. Our will is to have only the good ones and get rid of the bad ones. Here's what Ibn Arabi says about this. This is one of my favorite images. I think it's very useful. There's a verse in the Quran about Allah, who each day is upon some task, which for Sufis means that everything is happening is the task of Allah. I mean, everything. So, you know, the rain, that's Allah performing some task. Inner or outer, your thoughts are Allah performing some task. Whatever is going on, that's how they interpret that verse. So, he writes, the heart fluctuates from state to state, just as God, who is the beloved, is each day upon some task. So the lover undergoes constant variation in the object of his love, in keeping with the constant variation of the beloved in his acts. The lover is like the clear and pure glass goblet, which undergoes constant variation of the liquid within it. The color of the lover is the color of the beloved. So if you think of this clear glass goblet, if I pour in red sweet wine, it accepts that. And not only does it accept it, from Ibn Ari's point of view, it's completely open to this because I am the beloved and this is my act of pouring in the sweet red wine and it's wonderful. And I pour that out and then I pour in dry white wine and that's wonderful too. And I pour that out, I pour in vinegar. And that's wonderful too. Because it's all the beloved. So it's just wonderful. This is a, a description of complete emotional surrender, of a completely purified emotional heart. See, not that, not that there aren't emotions in it. A purified emotional heart does not mean that there aren't emotions in it. It means they're no longer yours. They're the beloved's. And there's just a complete appreciation and love of what's going on. This surrender includes self-will when it comes to spiritual states, not just ordinary emotional states, worldly emotional states, we might say, but spiritual experiences and spiritual states and even applies to what we feel manifestly as spiritual love for the divine or spiritual longing. 
And again, it's not getting rid of the emotion. It's the self-will that says, oh, I like that. Oh, I see the point of practice. Ah, oh, now I'm feeling all this wonderful ecstasy and my heart is overflowing with love and I just can't believe it. And it's so beautiful and everything's radiating. Ah, now, and I'll, I'll practice more. Yes, this is the self-will part is here is what I'm going to do to create this, to maintain it, to, you know, whatever. There's nothing wrong with what is going on. That's just more wine in the goblet, especially, you know, a refined wine in the goblet. But the self-will part comes and it's the, the doer in there. This is what Catherine of Genoa says. Lord, Lord, I want no sign from you, nor am I looking for intense feelings to accompany your love. They get in the way of pure love. For under the guise of pure love, it is those emotional feelings to which the soul becomes attached. Love must be naked. Love has no will of its own. Love is totally surrendered to the will of the beloved. So she's not saying that she's going to reject these feelings if they come. That would be uh, very ungrateful. That would be the opposite. That's pushing away. But it means you're not willing for them to happen. You're leaving it up to the beloved. And you might remember this when you start feeling disappointed after you've had some wonderful spiritual experiences here. So, you know, the morning session went wonderful, la da da, well, the afternoon wasn't so hot. Well, you identified, oh, that's my self will entering there. Okay? And you might find yourself adjusting your practice in order to get back to that morning experience. Not adjusting your practice based on some insight you've had but adjusting your practice in order to rearrange the spiritual furniture the way you would like it. If you catch yourself doing that, that's, again, a chance to surrender. Surrender that will. Whatever the beloved wants. I'm just the goblet here. Pour in whatever you'd like. Fine with me. This includes, and this is getting more subtle even, our attachment or our will to achieve states of purity and virtue, which isn't necessarily an emotional feeling, but it's some quality that we can be proud of, that shows we've accomplished something, we've arrived someplace. Here's how Ramakrishna dealt with that. This is his prayer that he used to say. Oh, mother, here is sin and here is virtue. Take them both and grant me pure love for thee. Here is knowledge and here is ignorance. I lay them at thy feet. Grant me pure love for thee. Here is purity. Here is impurity. Take them both and grant me pure love for thee. Here are good works and here are evil works. I lay them both at thy feet. Grant me pure love for thee. Now, there are several things to say about this. First of all, if you have no virtue and no purity, you've got nothing to lay at the mother's feet. So this is not a, an excuse not to develop purity and virtue. Once you have purity and virtue, though, it is a teaching about becoming attached to them and owning them and willing to maintain them. 
And it's also a teaching about what happens when uh, you think you've attained some purity and some virtue and then you go do something nasty and then you feel unworthy and you feel guilty and you feel terrible and you feel all this stuff and you're seesawing between these states. And when you're in the depths here and you're going, oh, you know, poor me, I'll never be worthy of the beloved or whatever, that's the time to look right there and see there's self-will here. It's subtle self-will. It's a kind of negative will. But again, it's the I starring in the story of how rotten I am. Still get the star. Oh, I couldn't get the hero's part? Okay, I'll take the villain's part. Sure, that's a good juicy part. I'd rather have that than the waiter, you know. So you recognize that. You're wallowing in self-pity. Sometimes that itself can feel spiritual. It's like some sort of penance you're doing or making up for your sins or whatever. But it's not. You might remember Ramana Krishna's way of cutting through all that. Just lay it all at the mother's feet. Give it up. Give it away. He mentioned Ramakrishna, uh, I lay uh, knowledge, I lay ignorance at your feet. Here's what Rumi says about this will to know, to understand, to figure things out. Since cleverness is your pride and fills you with wind, become a simpleton so that your heart may remain healthy. Not a simpleton warped by buffoonery, but one distraught and bewildered in God. Not a simpleton like Charlie Brown, the class fool, you know, is always cutting up and stuff like that. He's making it clear that he's not talking about that. But a simpleton who is distraught and bewildered in God, who has no idea what's going on, who's lost all cleverness, all sophistication, all that is put on the altar and burned up. You don't know. You don't need to know as a bhakti. You don't need to know at all. That's why bhaktis, the Christian tradition, don't talk about, or the later ones, I should say, don't talk about gnosis. They talk about agnosia. Unknowing. So that you have no mistake about it. This is some kind of knowing like you got things figured out. Finally. You're never going to figure things out. You can't figure things out. Let it go. Become distraught and bewildered in God. Uh, surrendering the fruit of the action. Another subtle one. We act and we have an expectation of how things are going to come out. And just at the level of planning, like on your job and so forth, that's fine to have that expectation. Obviously, you have some goal. You've got to sell, you know, a thousand refrigerators this month. And so you have a plan how you're going to sell a thousand refrigerators, whatever it is. And it either works or not. And that's how we play the game. You know, we set benchmarks. We have boundaries. We have rules. And we all go out on the basketball court and play the game. But it's being attached to the fruit of the action that's the problem. So that the mind, the attention, everything is looking for the outcome to make me happy. Finally, I'm going to be happy. Finally, when I sell those thousand refrigerators and I get a promotion, and then I'll be happy. And it applies to spiritual practice as well. 
It's very closely related to that practicing for blissful states, for consolations, and so forth. We're practicing because we're attached to what's going to happen in the future. So here's what Brother Lawrence says. We must give ourselves to God entirely and in complete abandonment in the temporal and the spiritual realms, finding joy in carrying out his will, whether he leads us by way of suffering or consolation, for it is all the same to one who is completely abandoned. Whether the beloved leads you by suffering or by consolation, if you're completely surrendered to the beloved, it's not up to you. And it's not a question of resignation. Surrender has the quality of an active wanting to give. You're not just neutral about it. Rumi has a wonderful line someplace else where he says, a worldly beggar stands in the corner and asks you for money. The Sufi stands in the corner and begs you to take his life. That captures the spirit of surrender to the beloved here. And finally, finally, we get to one that we almost all fall prey to at uh, gross levels and at very subtle levels. You have to watch this one carefully. This surrender must be unconditional. It is unconditional love and it's unconditional surrender. Now, when we say that, of course, it's a practice. So you have to identify the conditions that you place on your love before you're willing to surrender And that's the name of the game of the practice. So this runs counter to most of exoteric religion. Most of exoteric religion is about a constant bargaining with the Lord. Let's say I had a mild heart attack this year. Okay, comes time to pay my taxes. I say, okay, God, I won't cheat on my taxes this year, but no more heart attacks. Right? Okay? So you write out the full check, you know, exaggerate what you gave to charity or something, you know. Then no more heart attacks taken care of for the year. The trouble is, of course, if you get a heart attack, then you get angry. What's the matter with you? We had a bargain. People like this, they treat God as though God were some merchant that you have to haggle with for the best deal. So here's what Raman Maharshi says. To be complete... Surrender must be unquestioning. The devotee cannot bargain with the Lord or demand favors at his hands. Such entire surrender comprises all. So watch yourself in your practice in subtle ways that you're trying to bargain with the beloved. All right. I'll sit through this last round, but I want some consolation by God. I mean, I've been here three rounds and nothing has happened. And again, it's just a question of identifying. That's a little bit of self-will, how you want this to go. You're willing to give up something, but you're not willing to give up your self-will, that little last kernel of self-will. When you notice it, I can't tell you how it happens, but if you notice it and you are willing, paradoxically, then it can drop away. 
And the clue that it's happened is almost always a sense of relief. Ah, a little burden has been laid down. Some other thing to worry about has been given up. So, the more we purify our emotional hearts, the more we substitute the motivation of serving the beloved rather than serving ourselves, and the more we surrender to the beloved, the more we enter the spiritual heart. As the emotional heart becomes cleared, the spiritual heart is revealed, so to speak. And when you enter the spiritual heart, one of the things that you discover is that in bhakti terms, there's another will. A will that can guide you, that in a certain sense can substitute for the will you have given up. Here's how Ibn Arabi describes it. When a man renounces his own individual desire, shrinks from his own ego, and prefers his Lord over all else, then God sets up before him the form of a divine guidance, which casts to him from his Lord that within which lies his felicity. So the more you surrender your ego, the more, in bhakti terms, God starts manifesting his or her will to you in a way that leads you to your own happiness. The Christians, of course, call this grace. The Hindus have a word called prasada, which is almost always translated as grace when it's translated into English. And here's what Ramakrishna says about The breeze of grace is blowing. Set your sails to catch that breeze. So then the question is, how can we do this? Here's how Theophane the recluse describes the whole way this works. Seek God. Such is the unalterable rule of all spiritual advancement. Nothing comes without effort. The help of God is always ready and always near, but it is only given to those who seek and work, and only to those seekers who, after putting all their own powers to the test, then cry out with all their heart, Lord, help us. So long as you hold on to even a little hope of achieving something by your own powers, the Lord does not interfere. It is though, he says, you hope to succeed by yourself? Very well, go on trying. But however long you try, you will achieve nothing. So here we have laid out very plainly the paradox of will and grace, effort, effortlessness. And in fact, for most people, this process doesn't happen 
in an all or nothing way that Theophane presents it. He's presenting the principle. It's not like you go work, 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 and then throw up your hands and then suddenly grace takes over in your life and that's it. It usually happens in little increments, in little ways. And often the guidance that Ibn Arabi described is subtle and easy to overlook. So we have to become a little sensitive to it. For instance, I mentioned that you might be struggling to say your mantra or your word, to repeat it and repeat it, and it's getting harder and you're struggling. And finally, your effort is exhausted and you just give it up and then you find it's going on its own. That would be an example of this grace and this guidance. Perhaps you have some question about your practice or maybe something in your life or whatever, and you get an answer in a dream. That would be an example of this kind of guidance. It might be some synchronistic event. Uh, One of the famous examples is St. Augustine who at a certain time of a spiritual crisis in his life, and I've forgotten the details, but he was deciding whether he should be a lawyer or or dedicate his life to the church or something, and he was in this kind of spiritual frenzy, and he rushed into the library and he pulled out the New Testament and he opened it up and the eyes fell on this passage and it spoke directly to what he was struggling with and that was it. He took it as guidance, he closed the book and it changed his life. His whole life went in another direction. So these are examples of ways that you can be guided by this mysterious grace. At first, these things can seem very serendipitous, and we may not even pay any attention to them. We may notice them, but we think, what What was that? And if we're not sensitive to it, if we're not looking for it, we may just dismiss it and go about our business. If we become sensitive to it and we start noticing it more, then for a lot of people, it's a question of trust. I think especially in this culture, you know, to actually let stuff like this guide your life runs against the grain. So at least in my case, I had to learn to trust this kind of guidance. I had to learn to listen and then I had to learn to trust. And the more we do, the more it takes over our life. And the more we can relax. And relaxing again, though, doesn't mean giving up our practices. It means relaxing within the discipline of the practice. And a good example of this is something like an accomplished performer in the performing arts, let's say. Not a beginner, but someone who's practiced. They can begin to relax within the practice. If you're, let's say, I don't know, a pianist, your hands know how to play the piano. You don't worry about your hands knowing how to play the piano anymore. You can turn it over to your hands and they will play the piano. So it's not that you stop playing the piano, but it starts flowing through you. This grace can literally start to operate on a day-to-day basis in everyday situations in your life. And here's the cloud of unknowing. 
And the author writes, Then that same spiritual love which you feel will guide you discreetly in all your activities without any error. For if by grace you accustom yourself to this love and let it continually work within you, then if it is necessary for you to speak with others or to eat with them or abide in their company or to do anything else that accords with common Christian customs and with nature, this love shall first stir you softly to speak or to do these other things, whatever they be. And if then you do not do them, this love will pain your heart sorely and let you have no peace until you do whatever it guides you to. And I will tell you, this was my experience with Athena. Athena first appeared to me in a dream, in a very concrete, visible way, and then she started guiding me, just in the way he's describing. I relate completely to this passage. But I have to say a few things about this. One is, we have to be careful to discriminate between what is true grace or guidance and what is a voice of the ego dressing up in spiritual clothing. And I know a lot of people who have spirit guides and I listen to the kinds of things their spirit guides tell them to do. And I wonder, maybe that's true. I don't know. I'm not inside their heads. But when their spirit guides are telling them, oh, you should go out and buy a new car. You've worked so hard this year and you've got this extra money. I always ask myself when I hear that, why do you need a spirit guide to tell you that? Your ego can tell you that just fine. So that's one of the things you can look at. Is the guidance you're getting just guidance that reinforces your self-centeredness? Is it guidance that just reinforces the ego? Then it's not true spiritual guidance. It's ego guidance. And that's okay, but just recognize what it is. So one of the things about a true spiritual guidance, one of the qualities it has is autonomy. It feels like it's coming from someplace else. With Athena, I went through a period of trying to figure out just what was going on here. I mean, was she a figment of my imagination? I knew I didn't think her up consciously, so that made me think maybe I'm going psychotic. Uh, maybe she is some being that exists on the astral plane that comes down and visits me in my sleep or whatever. I mean, my mind started to right away try to place her into some sort of rational you know, universe and eventually, I just, I gave that up. I said, you know, you don't know. I mean, that's why you're in a spiritual path, right? You don't know what reality is. So stop trying to figure it out. And so I just started paying attention to the value of what she was trying to communicate. So I just stopped trying to decide what she was. But I knew she wasn't the ego. It had that quality of autonomy, something coming from the outside. Now, autonomy is a very good indication that it's some sort of spiritual guidance and not just something your ego's manufactured, but it is also not a foolproof criteria because I think it's relatively rare and I don't want to frighten anybody, but also what used to be called demonic voices have an autonomous quality, what we would today call psychotic. 
So there are people who hear autonomous voices in their heads saying, you know, you got to go out and kill somebody. That is not spiritual guidance coming from the beloved. And the way you can tell that is then the value of the message. What is being said? Is it a message that is coming from love and compassion and directing you to love and compassion? It can be a sharp message. It doesn't have to be a soft and fluffy message. It can be quite stern. But is it pointing you in the direction of love, of selflessness, of the good of the whole, those sorts of things? Or is it commanding you to do harm? And if you have any doubts about it, go talk to a teacher. They don't have to be a mystic, but just go talk to somebody. Anyway, I just mentioned this. I don't want anybody to dwell on it or worry about it or it's not something to be, you know, concerned about. I think it's quite rare that it happens, but it does happen. And so we just have to recognize that that fact. Okay, we're just going to continue practicing what you've already practiced. Prayer in the heart. And that's the fundamental thing. If nothing else happens, that's fine. Don't go out looking for other stuff to happen. When we were practicing learning how to purify emotions at the root, we went out and dredged them up so we could do it. But now we're just settling back and we're just practicing prayer in the heart. If strong negative emotions arise around that, then you have a tool to liberate them. If you start feeling resistant to the practice, well, change your motivation. Stop doing it for yourself. Do the practice for the beloved. And whenever you detect some impulse of self-will, I got to get out of here. Oh, (laughs) notice that. And surrender to the beloved. Everything is offering to the beloved. Whatever comes up, just like Ramakrishna said, just lay it at the mother's feet. Here's purity, here's impurity, here's this, here's that. Don't get into a battle with it. Don't get into a battle with yourself. Just give it all up. And if you do that, the practice itself will be blissful. Okay? If you'd like to follow our format, stop your player now and practice until you're familiar with these instructions. Then start your player again and continue with the program.
May I ask a question? Yes, you certainly can. Okay. Um, about this purification process that happened in your heart, in your emotional heart. Um, that now by that you mean Where's the Kleenex? Pass it down. We got it here. I have a stash. Oh, you have a stash. Okay, good. I mean, you really have to get to it. You really recognize it. Nothing in this world will ever bring you happiness. Even anything that's so dear to you or you want it to be like something good to happen to it. And it just turns into shit. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I missed the question. <laughs> you need one of those big hearing aids. I do, I think I'm getting that. <laughs> one of those, <laughs> those funnels. <laughs> 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 the greatest I got the part about. Yes. That's the, that's the, is that the question? Yes. Okay, so you really, really have to realize it has every, your, your deepest, deepest, deepest level that this world cannot be happy. Yes. <laughs> is that how you feel about the heart? Yes. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> That's actually, when you say this world, we normally make a distinction between the worldly world and the spiritual world. But in, in point of fact, as we are going to get to, it's not even just this world, it's even the spiritual world. So it's deep, 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 <laughs> deep, deeper than deep. Oh, we're getting deep now. Yeah, we're going deep. <laughs> we're going deeper though. Okay. Yeah. You said today, I think, that, you, you know, or maybe it was last night, you know, yeah, he described a couple and they have their hooks into each other and as long as they don't pull too hard, it right. doesn't hurt too much. But then you said you could put your hooks into the divine all you want. Yes. Well, I haven't been experiencing that to be true. Um, <laughs> the divine does what it wants. Yes. You can't, I can't have it be there for me whenever I want. It's going to be there or it's not. Oh, absolutely. I'm sorry. I didn't make myself clear. You can't hurt the divine by putting your hooks into it. Oh, you might get hurt putting your hooks in. Yeah. But, but, you, but you don't have to be afraid about hurting God like, like you would another human being. Do you know what I mean? If you put your hooks in a human being, you're going to hurt that human being. And you're going to get hurt if they put their hooks into you. But as far as God's concerned, you can put your hooks into God all you want. Uh, that's how you're going to learn lessons. That's fine. God doesn't mind at all. In fact, God invites you. Put your hooks in me and see what happens. Go ahead. That's right. that's right. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> Casting Clint Eastwood as God. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, God wears all sorts of faces. Sometimes God appears as Clint Eastwood. Exactly right. <laughs> Any other questions? Okay, let's move on then. So the first thing we've been talking about this afternoon, uh, getting guidance and experiencing little incidences of grace, but there's a danger in this because it can make some people start to feel very special, that they've been selected out by God, you see, that God's going to take care of everything now. And this leads to two big problems for a spiritual seeker. One is spiritual pride, and the other is complacency, and they're related. Because once you get proud of your accomplishments or how much you've been singled out, then you tend to get complacent about your practice. And this is very common. It's known in all the traditions. So it would be surprising if you didn't have any experience of this. Uh, but here's what Theophane the recluse says. And he calls it satiety as in being satiated. Flee from satiety, the state when the heart says cunningly to itself, enough, I need nothing more. I have worked hard. I have established order in myself. Now I can allow myself a little rest. The direct effect of satiety is weakening of attention and allowing of exemptions to oneself. Whoever permits this will begin to slide downhill like a man on a slippery slope. This is the danger, so watch. In keeping with our nomenclature here, I would say the ego says, oh, you've done enough. God's showering you with graces and stuff. You don't need to practice. Watching the attachments, the grasping, the subtle grasping, the aversion... Almost everybody's bound to experience periods of this, but some people really get stuck in it. And then if somebody points it out to them, they take offense and they really begin to feel that they're special and that maybe they're already enlightened and nobody can tell them anything. And then they are in really deep doo-doo. But if you continue with your practice uh, and if you continue to particularly purify your heart, you begin to see that this grace that you're experiencing, this guidance, is something that runs through all your life and always actually has run through all your life. And not only your life, but all of life, and in fact, the whole cosmos. You could say the cosmos runs on grace. This isn't a, a theology you begin to really experience that the same power that moves your breath in and out is the power that moves the wind. The same flashing of the lightning is the flashing of your thoughts. It's all one manifestation. There's a unity behind it. Here's what the Quran says. Whichever way you turn, there is the face of God. Here you've been going in your heart, trying to find the beloved, going deeper inside. The beloved resides in the heart. And suddenly, wow, wait a minute. 
the beloved's out there and over here and there and there. Uh-oh. The beloved's all around. So you start to see the beloved in outer aspects of your life as well as in your heart. Lali Shroy describes uh, this. This is her experience with a mantra, Soham. It's a classic Indian mantra. Everything has become new for me. My mind is new. The moon is new. The sun is new. The whole world appears fresh and new, as if rinsed with water. Since I washed my mind and body with the soap of Soham, I have become like new. I am transformed. It's not the same old world. It's something different. This marks a big turning point in many people's spiritual path. It's like you've been working in this narrow tunnel and you've been excavating and you've been going down deeper and deeper. Oh, yes, you get the bigger caverns and they open up and suddenly... Boom, you're thrown out again. And what's happened is a kind of funny reversal. You began by withdrawing attention from the world, realizing that the world of forms and people and all that can never bring you true abiding happiness. So you renounce the hope of finding true abiding happiness in the world. And usually for most people, that means a kind of turning away from the world. They kind of lose interest in the world. I mean, after all, if it's not going to make you happy, you know. And then you turn around and you start practicing inwardly and you start purifying your heart and all that. And the path leads you back to the world. You are trying to discover what is it that transcends the world. You're looking elsewhere from the world and you come back and you discover that that which transcends the world is also imminent in the world, to use some technical terminology here. So you come back to the world and yet it's a transformed world because the forms of the world are now transparent to the beloved. So it's the same old world, but it's not the same old world. Here's how Meister Eckhart explains it. This whole double movement of turning inward and then popping out again, so to speak. Truly, God and the whole world make it impossible for a man to find true consolation who seeks his consolation in created things. So that's the first lesson we have to learn, that renunciation that we are going to ever find happiness in created things. And that makes us turn away. Look elsewhere. What transcends created things? That's where I'll find the beloved. But then my circuit goes on. But who would in created things love God alone? And who would love created things only in God, he would find true 
just an unchanging consolation everywhere. To love God in created things and to love created things in God, seeing them as manifestations of God. So I love Jennifer. And I look at Jennifer and suddenly she hasn't changed, nothing's changed, but it's not Jennifer, it's God. But it's God specifically, precisely as Jennifer. So, you know, I don't say, Jennifer, take off your mask, let me see God. I'm looking at God. Wherever you turn, there's God's face. We already get intimations of this. And if we're not spiritual, we don't have a spiritual vocabulary or framework to put it in. But this is beauty in the world. Whenever we see beauty, a sunset, a redwood, uh, you know, whatever. And there's that sense that there's something more here. It's not just a redwood. It's, what is it? Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, I, I can't believe none of you have ever experienced at least that kind of beauty in life, right? Well, you, this is what I mean by the forms become transparent to the divine. I don't mean any kind of, uh, you know, we sort of curtains are rising in a physical sense. The beauty shines through. The main thing that allows you to glimpse the imminent God, the God in form, is the surrender of your concepts about the world. And that's not just your philosophical concepts that you carefully thought out. I'm talking about the common sense concepts that you have and use all the time about, well, of course, this is what the world is. And the world will appear to you the way you think about it. So if you think about it as a materialist, a pure materialist, then the world will appear to you the way it appears to Steven Weinberg, for instance, who's a materialist physicist who writes about that he's flying over somewhere over the United States and he looks down and there's all this farmland and, you know, amber waves of grain and it looks so beautiful. But he knows the world is a cold, cruel, uncaring place. That's the way the world appears to him. If your concepts and the way you categorize the world is with spirits and demons and all that stuff, then that's the way the world's going to appear to you. You'll experience it that way. It's not just thinking about it. You'll experience it. When I talked about the two tours that go down the Grand Canyon, they're both projecting their concepts onto what they're experiencing. So if you want to see the unvarnished truth, you have to erase that. You have to surrender that. You can still have your concepts as useful tools to work with. But it's like having glasses, sunglasses. You know, uh, when I was in Nam, we used to have all these different kind of sunglasses, you know, yellow ones and literally rosy colored ones. We all get stoned and, you know, trade <laughs> shades. Oh man, look at this. Yeah. Well, if you're stuck with glasses with a certain tint, 
and you're wearing them all the time, then that's the way the world looks to you, you know? But if you take them off, you'll see what, you know, in a relative sense, we think of as the way the world really looks. And you can keep them for when you need them. When it's too bright, you can put them back on. You can keep your concepts, but they're not fixed as part of your face anymore. You realize, oh, I can surrender them. I can give them up for a while. Yeah. So you're saying that um, if you just sat in the chair and looked straight out, you would see color, and that would be it. All of the rest of it is concept? Uh, color is a concept, too, Peggy. so sensations are are concepts too of course sensations are concepts you distinguish sensations from thoughts don't you the mind draws that distinction that is the you know most primitive form of concept you can have the mind draws distinctions yeah so see this is the point we strip down to our bare concepts. We say, okay, now I'm naked. You're not naked. You've just taken off your outer garments. You're standing there in your bra and your panties. <laughs> I mean, you got to get naked here. <laughs> and if you think about it, the more you think about it, the more you're just changing blouses. You're standing in the mirror changing blouses. No, that's very good. Listen to what... Um, <laughs> I'm hot tonight. (laughs) Listen to what John of the Cross says, the great Christian mystic. Those are decidedly hindered from attaining this high state of union with God who are attached to any understanding, feeling, imagining, opinion, desire, or way of their own. Their goal transcends all of this, even the loftiest object that can be known or experienced. Consequently, they must pass beyond everything to unknown. So, if we want to... Oh, what was that beautiful line of Aldous Huxley's? Cleanse the doors of perception... We have to surrender and abandon our knowledge, our understanding, our opinions, our imaginings, all of that. And we have to proceed by unknowing. Now notice, at this point is where the bhakti and the jnana paths begin to merge. And John of the Cross is primarily a bhakti. Most of his writings, most of his practices and stuff are about following love. But we're coming here to emerging. There's a famous Zen saying, don't be afraid of don't know mind. That's the same thing. So this is one of the keys in this process of purifying the heart and surrendering when we get to this business of surrendering our ideas about the way things are, that's when we start to get the glimpses of the God that's imminent in the world, in the forms of the world. That's when they start to become transparent. So, this is where the bhakti path goes. We've been following it, and it goes inward and inward and inward, and then suddenly it starts opening up outward again 
And that's where we are here. Now, that may not be where you are. And if it's not where you are, you can't make it happen. So you just continue on with whatever practice you're doing at whatever level of practice you're doing. And we just keep doing this work of removing the obstacles, getting rid of the attachments, purifying our emotions. And that's what we do. And everything else, that's up to the divine. We just see what happens. We surrender the fruits of our action. So that's what we're going to practice tonight. As we've been doing, we begin with prayer in the heart. And if negative emotions arise, strong negative emotions, we practice purifying them at the root. If we find that we have some self-centered motivation, we transform that by doing for the beloved what we would normally do for ourselves. Whenever we find self-will asserting itself, we try to identify that and then just drop that. And particularly now, we want to try to identify whenever the mind starts telling you what's what. When the mind starts interpreting your experience. And you just want to notice that and just let it go. And don't get into a battle with the mind. It's the same principle applies. If you get into a battle with the mind, you're just interpreting on the interpretation. Because now you're telling the mind what you think should happen. So you can just notice that and let it go. And that's why your mantra, your word is very useful. It gives you something to come back to. So this is where we really want to become like spiritual babes. As the Tao Te Ching says, you know, I'm like a babe before it's even learned to smile. It's not Rumi, some other Sufi said, you become a child of the moment. And Jesus said, you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you become like one of these little children. He meant that very literally. You won't be able to see the kingdom of God, which is all around you, unless you can have that unknowing mind. So it's not that we're doing anything different. We're just pointing out something to become aware of. Okay? You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing at least once a day until you're thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more teachings and practices.